One more thing, every quarter we get a magazine from Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel magazine. Lots of different information about what God's doing in Calvary Chapels around the nation and around the world. So we just give these away. There's a whole stack of them there at the information booth. If you'd like to grab one, feel free to do so. All right. Matthew chapter 24. How many of you are excited about studying Matthew chapter 24? Please turn there with me. It's page 1,141 if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Go ahead and put a bookmark there. We will be spending time on Wednesday nights in Matthew chapter 24 all the way till Christmas. So we'll be spending the rest of our year on Wednesday nights studying this very important chapter. Lord, as we begin this journey, we pray for insight, we pray for clarity, we pray for wisdom. Lord, we trust you. You know all things in advance. You've got the future all mapped out. And you have our lives in your hands. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time together in your your word. I pray that you would greatly encourage your people, strengthen us, comfort, encourage, convict, challenge. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a red letter edition of the Bible indicating all of the words of Jesus Christ in the color red... You're going to see a lot of red letters in Matthew chapter 24, and that's because it's a sermon that Jesus delivered, and he delivers this sermon from a very uh, important mountain in the scripture, a mountain called the Mount of Olives, overlooking the old city of Jerusalem and the temple. So every now and then you'll hear this sermon referred to as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave it from the Mount of Olives. Now, there is great fascination with this chapter because the topic of this sermon is last day prophecies. And last day prophecy is a very popular subject among Christians. Are we living in the last days? How do we know if we're living? In the last days? Is Jesus coming soon? What about the rapture? How is the world going to end? Well, Jesus gives us answers to those questions in Matthew 24, right from Jesus himself. So tonight, we're going to get some background on this sermon and we're going to try to just sort of set the table. For it, I want you to notice verse 1. I want you to read it very carefully with me. Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. 
there is a very important critical movement taking place that you need to understand. So we have a little schematic of the old city of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. And the temple was very prominent. To the east of that city is the Mount of Olives. Now, as most of you know, Jesus spent most of his time at the Galilee. In fact, 70 to 80% of his public ministry was spent north of this place in Galilee. But Jesus and his disciples would come and visit Jerusalem from time to time, which was the epicenter of Judaism, to celebrate the feast. And whenever Jesus and his disciples would come, They'd they'd operate, Jesus would do teaching, he did many miracles in that area, but at night they would go to the Mount of Olives, actually to a place called Bethany, where they would stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, notice real carefully what it says in verse 1. On this occasion, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Now, the language carries with it finality. The idea is Jesus departed from the temple for good. Jesus left the temple not to return. You remember in those concerts with Elvis, when he'd finally leave the building, they'd say, Elvis left the building. So you can all leave now, right? Because people would hang around for hours wanting to get a glimpse of Elvis. Well, you could say, in this passage, Jesus Christ left the temple. He departed from it. Now, why did he leave the temple? Why was this his last time there? Well, here we are right in the middle of Passion Week. Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem for the last time to celebrate Passover together. And you remember at the end of Passion Week, Jesus is crucified, buried, and raised again. Well, Passion Week started off really awesome for Jesus, this event called Palm Sunday. Jesus came in riding on a donkey. They put the blankets and the clothing on the pathway. They waved the palm branches. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a humongous deal. Jesus on Palm Sunday was formally being presented to the nation of Israel as their Messiah, as their king. He was being formally presented to them. Jesus was rejected by the nation of Israel as represented by the religious establishment. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, all of those folks. And so during Passion Week, in the early part of it, Jesus is facing intense opposition from the religious establishment. Now, he always did throughout his public ministry. But... This week, huge confrontation. 
day one didn't help any. Day one on Passion Week, Jesus picked up a whip. Remember this? And he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. Kicked all of the money changers out. All of the corruption that was happening in the temple. Well, the religious leaders didn't like that much. And so throughout that week, Jesus, when he's teaching in the temple courts like he would normally do, he was challenged publicly by the religious establishment. And it just got really ugly. They came up to Jesus in public one time and said, hey, who gives you the authority to do the things you do? And Jesus answered that question in such a way that made them look silly in public. And then they came up with all of these different gotcha questions, these trick questions, trying to make Jesus look bad publicly. And so they asked him about, you remember, paying taxes to Caesar. And then they presented that ridiculous case where a guy marries seven wives, all seven die. You got to wonder what he was putting in their coffee, right? And then who's he going to be married to in the next life after the resurrection? A complete misunderstanding of resurrection. And then he was asked by the scholars, the lawyers, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And all of these were intended to be gotcha questions, to humiliate Jesus. But you remember, Jesus responded in such a way that humiliated them. And then Jesus goes on to tell some blistering parables in public, obviously directed to those guys. And the fighting, the opposition, reaches a feverish pitch in Matthew chapter 23, right before chapter 24 here. The harshest words that Jesus spoke during his public ministry are recorded in Matthew 23, directed to the religious establishment. Let me give you just a few highlights. Jesus literally said these things. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in nor yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jesus saying that to them publicly in the temple courts. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Whoa! Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. This is a massive pronouncement of judgment against the religious leaders who are rejecting him. And it's clear that there's no chance... They're not going to receive Jesus. In fact, you know, they're plotting how they might get Jesus delivered over to the Romans for crucifixion, even at that point. So, Matthew 23 closes with these words from Jesus spoken to the religious establishment publicly in the temple. Pay attention. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more. Till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they've rejected Jesus. Here Jesus is rejecting them. He says, I'm leaving the temple. You're not going to see me again. Not to a specific time. And he even says something that was mind-blowing. Your house is going to be desolate. What house? That temple. Your temple is going to be destroyed. And not only will the temple be destroyed or that house be desolate... Jesus is saying the house of Israel, the religion of Israel will be desolate. So right after he says those words, he departed from the temple, never to return again, and went up onto the Mount of Olives. Following that movement, radical moment. They have rejected Jesus. Jesus has now rejected them. Things have changed. There's an incredible prophecy out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet in the Old Testament. He got a vision of the temple. The nation of Israel was sinning. They were about to be judged. The Babylonians were going to come and destroy the temple and all of that. And Ezekiel literally was given a vision of the glory of God departing from the temple. And it's interesting what Ezekiel says there. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So the presence of God comes out of the Holy of Holies up against the temple, right up and just kind of hovers there. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the which side? East side of the city. Same movement. When Israel sinned in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God left the temple. And here at this moment, the glory of God wrapped up in the Son of God, their Messiah, has left the temple. So this is a huge, huge moment, a huge turning point, not only in Passion Week, but in history. Now, those disciples that were with Jesus, they saw all this. They heard this. They heard Jesus say to the religious leaders, the house is going to be desolate. And they had an incredibly big time reaction to the words that Jesus said. In fact, somebody took a picture of the disciples. Way back, we have their pictures. There's Peter, James, John, and Matthew, man. 
the shocked emojis, the surprise, wide eyes, open mouths, disbelief. They heard that language from Jesus and they were blown away. In fact, I can hear them saying, did he really just say what he just said? What's he doing? What's going on here? So now look at verse 1. It says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So you see, Jesus has just said, the house is going to be desolate. And he goes up on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come up and say, look, look, at, the, look at the buildings. Of, what do you mean it's going to be desolate? The temple on the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus was massive. There was nothing like it. An artist drew it close to the, what it was back in the days of Jesus. Now that's from the Mount of Olives looking from the southern eastern part. Massive. Here's another picture of it still from the Mount of Olives from a northerly direction. If you go to Israel with us, many times we'll stop at the Israeli museum and they have a a model of the old city of Jerusalem that you can actually walk around and it has a picture of what the temple looked like. That's, That's Herod's temple looking from the Mount of Olives. I'll zoom in on that temple. Now, it's just massive. The whole structure, all the buildings of it, nothing like it. Huge stones. The stones in the temple proper were overlaid with white marble and gold trim. It was said by some that the temple was hard to look at during the day when the sunlight reflected off of it. Jesus says, your house is going to be desolate. And the disciples are like, really? Did you mean that when you said that? And Jesus doubles down, verse 2. Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Yes, I said what I meant, and I meant what I said. That massive temple complex is going to be desolate. In fact, not one stone is going to lay upon another stone. It's going to be completely dismantled, completely destroyed. Peter, James, John, and Matthew. What? So their heads are absolutely blown at this point. They're filled with massive confusion. So look at verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Three questions. Three questions. Question number one. When will these things be? What things? 
When's that temple going to be destroyed? You said the temple's going to be demolished? When's it going to be destroyed? When are those things going to happen? Question number two. What's the sign of your coming? Now, coming in the Greek, it's a very important word. It's, it's uh, parousia. It's found several times. And this is a word that speaks of a big reveal. A big advent. A huge unveiling. So the disciples are asking Jesus, when are you going to reveal yourself as king? We're expecting you to be our Messiah, our king. You're going to come in. You're going to kick out the Romans. You're going to set up your kingdom in Jerusalem. You're going to rule the world. And you're going to be in a Jerusalem with a temple that's fully intact. What do you mean this temple is going to be demolished? Jesus, when are you going to reveal yourself as king in glory? It's a big, big deal, this word coming. If, if you were to have a, 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 a good friend or neighbor um, come over to your house for dinner, they're coming over to your house for dinner, that would be kind of a normal thing, right? You'd, you'd be nice and hospitable. But what if the president of the United States were coming over to your house for dinner? First of all, how many of you would let him in? Don't, don't. But if the president were coming to your house, that would be parousia. Big deal. The disciples said, when is the president showing up? When is General Jesus showing up? When's he going to be revealed? And then the third question. What's the sign of the end of the age. Now, this is essentially the same question as the second question because they're both directly related. When Jesus is revealed in glory to be king, that will be the end of this world, the end of this age as we know it. Now, it's really important here to understand. Um, the perspective that these disciples had when they asked these questions. Please understand at this point, they had not yet put together that there'd be two advents. They had no idea that there would be a second coming. At this point, the first coming hasn't even ended. So they're not seeing a second coming. They don't have any idea about that. Now, I've shown you this very powerful chart before the mountain peaks of prophecy. The Old Testament prophets prophesied about the coming of Jesus Christ. And they did prophesy about a Messiah who would come and be a suffering Messiah. Jesus, at his first coming, would offer himself as a savior for the world. And then there are many other prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus coming in glory to reign and rule as king, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they're, they're, they're looking at these peaks like from over here, like from behind one peak, looking over one peak right across to that. They don't see the valley between. 
The church age was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. Now we get to see it from the side view, from our perspective. We know there's a first coming and there's going to be a second coming. The disciples didn't. So that explains why they're so shocked. They're expecting the second coming here. They're expecting Jesus to be king there. And that explains why their whole world falls apart when Jesus is arrested and crucified. What? The temple's being demolished? What? None of that made any sense to them. But we know that there's a second coming which is still future to us. And Jesus is going to give a whole bunch of signs in Matthew 24 that show that we're close to the second coming. So, three questions are asked of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Or Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. In verse 3. Three questions are asked. And in this sermon, Jesus answers all three. That first question, when is the temple destroyed? When does the house of Israel become desolate? Now that answer is not specifically directly given here in Matthew chapter 24, though it is alluded to. But Luke's account of this sermon contains the answer of Jesus to this first question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. He goes on to say, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus predicted there's a time where the city of Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. He says, you you hope you're not in Jerusalem when that happens. Don't go into Jerusalem if you're outside of Jerusalem. It'll be very tough for pregnant women and nursing those nursing babies. There's going to be catastrophic death. Many are going to die. Many will fall by the edge of the sword. Many Jews will be led captive and taken into all nations. And Jerusalem, the city, is going to be trampled, including the temple. Did that happen in history? Almost 40 years later, after Jesus gave this prophecy, in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. There were Jews in Jerusalem who decided they were going to revolt against Rome. 
And so there were lots of Jews in Jerusalem. The Roman Empire found out about it. They sent a general, a guy by the name of Titus, and his job was to quench that rebellion. According to history, they first of all surrounded the city. They laid siege to it, so nobody was able to get in or out. And a terrible famine had just been hit. So the Jews living inside Israel began starving to death. The historian Flavius Josephus writes these words. All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave out a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness this was not his doing. It was horrific what took place. According to history, folks, they ate their dead. So desperate. Horrific. Eventually, the Romans would get inside, level the city. The siege lasted 143 days. 600,000 Jews were killed. 1,000s were captured and deported, and the whole city was leveled. Now, Josephus tells us that Titus had ordered his men. Don't touch the temple. Leave the temple standing. But the soldiers had torched the place. And all the gold trim had melted in the blaze. And the golden molten metal round down between the stones of the temple. And in order to get to that gold, the soldiers removed every stone one by one. One, until the whole temple was dismantled. When Jesus makes a prophecy, literally, he said not one stone would be laid upon a stone. That prophecy gets fulfilled, literally. So, 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is gone. The nation of Israel has gone. For the next 2,000 years, till May 14th, 1948, Jews have been all over. And here is a picture of what the Temple Mount looks like today. It's still a massive structure. You're looking north, up here, south. Here's the western side of the Temple Mount. Down there... Um, is the famous Western Wall or Wailing Wall. You visit there and you can 
put the notes in the wall and people pray. Here's a picture of the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives today. No temple. What's there instead? (laughs) Golden Dome. Here's a picture. This was a tour way back in 2005. It's one of our best stops on the tour. We stop and we overlook the Mount of Olives and we read a good portion of Matthew 24 there. It's an incredible scene, an incredible sight. That prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. The temple is torn down. Now, here's what you need to know. The Old Test or the the last day prophecies indicate that there must be a temple on that temple mount in the last days. And the, last, the Old Testament prophecies also indicate that there must be a true nation of Israel back in the land of Israel in order for the last days to happen. Israel's back, May 14th, 1948. The temple's not, but one day it will be. And by the way, you should know there is a group that meets right there in the old city. They're called the Temple Institute. They have everything ready for when the new temple's built, down to the furniture that they're going to use, all of the different vessels. When that temple is rebuilt, it can be rebuilt very quickly. And people are ready to go. So, gang, if there is ever a world leader that comes on the scene, and enables the temple to be built on the place where this mosque is and bring worldwide peace, look out. It's a big part of the last day scenario. So Jesus answers that question. When will these things be happening? When will the temple be destroyed? He gives the prophecy. It's already been fulfilled. These next two questions. What's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the age? The rest of the chapter, Jesus gives specific signs that indicate that his coming is near, that the end of the world is at hand. Let's just get a little taste of them. Let's read. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Look at verse 12. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. We're going to look at each one of those signs in great specific detail over the next several weeks. 
indicating whether or not we are in the last days. And then look ahead. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. My brother and sister in Christ, we have a God who is sovereign. We have a God who is in charge of history. It's been said that history is his story. Things aren't random. And please understand, history is moving to a climax. It's moving to a completion. And the concluding event to history as we know it is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes in glory. When Jesus shows up the second time, everything changes forever. The world as you know it today is over. Everything is pointing towards his second coming. Are you looking forward to the coming of Christ? I am. I can't wait for several reasons. I'm ready to go home. Did you know the Bible teaches that this life for us is, this isn't our home. Did you know that you're a pilgrim passing through? You're an alien. You're stranger in the land. The Bible calls our current bodies tents. Our real citizenship is in heaven. And Paul says we eagerly await a savior from there. Who will transform our bodies one day to be like his glorious body. I'm ready. I'm ready to go home. You know, I've done a lot of uh, uh, traveling over... Over the years, I've done some mission trips where I've been in some third world countries. And it's fun and all. But God did not call me to be a missionary. I I need a place where there's indoor plumbing. I need the comforts of America. So when I got home to America, I I am so glad to be home. And then being away, you know, um, you get lonely. And, you know, I've got pictures of Kim. And pictures of my kids, when I'm on a trip, I'll look at them. But there's nothing like the real thing. There's nothing like being right there with her and being home. Your home is heaven. And one day you're going to see Jesus. Think of that. Right now we see as in a mirror. We see little pictures. But one day you're going to see Jesus and be with him. Home's coming. I'm also looking forward to justice finally prevailing. When Jesus comes again, he's going to set everything straight. And I long for that day, and I think a lot of us long for that day. 
There's so much injustice in this world. Think about throughout human history how in some nations, there have been uh, nations where most of the population is starving to death while the leaders live in luxury. How ugly that is. And I'm tired of bad news, aren't you? I'm tired of hearing about little girls being sex trafficked and senseless murders and Satan running amok and the wicked doing whatever they want and seeming like they get away with it. When Jesus comes again, justice will be served. And I I think all of us deep down in our hearts want that. This can't last forever. The pain's got to stop. I'm also looking forward to Jesus to come again because I'm ready for a king who knows what he's doing to rule. I'm tired of the bozo politicians leading our nation. I'm tired of the ridiculous, po- and, and, and you know, we kind of rely on them. Oh, we'll vote for this guy or that guy or whatever. Listen, one thing mankind has shown over the, the, all of human history, we are incapable of governing ourselves. Even in a great government like America, which I think is the greatest, there's issues, there's problems. When Jesus comes again, he is going to set up a kingdom. His capital will be Jerusalem. He will reign and rule over the world. And he will reign with righteousness and justice. Finally, someone in charge who knows what they're doing. And will reign and rule with him. I'm looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, deep down in my heart, as I think about Jesus coming again, my heart's filled with sadness. And great concern because listen, when Jesus comes, it's over. All the consequences of choices that have been made are set. When Jesus comes again, if you belong to him, he saves you. If you don't, he judges you. And there's no, I mean, there's no a little of this and a little of that. So I know lots of people who still need to know Jesus. I have some family members that I'm concerned about. I have some good friends. I'll bet you do too. So when I think of Jesus coming, I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm worried about my family members and my friends. And I think, man, we need, it motivates me to get more busy, to live my life more intentionally as a Christian witness to share the gospel with others. I want to put up this First coming of Jesus Christ, the long church age, and the second. I would say on the timeline, we're like right here. (laughs) You're going to see as we go through each one of these signs and the whole chapter, we are right on the cusp. There is no question that we are living in the last days. That means we need to work hard and be good witnesses and share the gospel with others. And by the way, this is the age of opportunity. This is the age of grace. If you're not right with Jesus, you better get right. 
Jesus at his first coming died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. And there's salvation only in him. You can only be saved through faith in Christ Jesus. The day of opportunity will close. Jesus will leave the temple. Jesus will return and there'll be judgment. But he doesn't have to be your judge. He can be your savior. And he wants to be your savior. And there's an enemy out there that does everything he can to keep you from letting Jesus save you. Don't be that person. You give your life to Christ right now. Let him change you. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, what an amazing passage. What an amazing plan. Lord, tonight we marvel at thinking of your second coming. We can't wait to see that, to see you glorified, to see you coming in the clouds. And we do look forward to the day where justice is served finally, where you reign and rule. And yet, even more marvelous than that is your first coming when you came as a servant. You left heaven, you became man, and you gave your life up. You died on the cross for our sins, you shed your blood. He rose again that third day, defeating death. How marvelous that is. How wonderful that is. Lord, as your people, as we consider the days getting short, I pray that we champion that message. We would live our lives intentionally as your witnesses, sharing good news with others. And then, Lord, I want to pray for anyone here. Maybe you're here this, this evening and you have not yet received Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never done that. Do it now. Ask Jesus to be put your faith and trust in him who died on the cross for your sins. He'll save you. Say, yeah, but I've done a lot of bad. The blood of Christ cleanses all sin. He'll save you. Yeah, but I got a lot of questions about all the injustices and the tragedies I've seen in this world. He's going to set that straight one day. Trust him. Put your faith in him right now. Become his child. If that's you, I want to lead you in just a real simple prayer. Prayer of faith. Just cry out to Lord. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for taking my sins upon yourself, dying in my place, so that I may be forgiven now and for all of eternity. I receive you right now, Lord. Jesus, be my Savior. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Use me in your plan. Make me a witness for you in this short, temporary life that we have here. May I live all for you. In Jesus' name, amen.